and welcome to this special episode of the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. We're now going to hear the full extent of the excellent interview with Joe Lindsley, the American journalist who's been in Ukraine since the start of the full-scale invasion. Joe, welcome to the podcast. So, good, great to talk to you again. Hello from, I think last time we spoke, we were in uh, Kiev or Lviv, and now I'm talking to you from Kharkiv, this great city just 30 miles away from the Russian border. Joe, as you say, the last time we spoke to you was last summer, wasn't it? In August, we met you a couple of times. A lot's changed since then. I, there was a lot of optimism in the air, I seem to recall. But tell us before we get on to some of the detail of what's been happening recently, wh what you've been up to since then and, and what your movements have been. Well, I've continued uh, every single weekday since February 24th, 2022. Uh, I continue to speak on Chicago's WGN radio uh, every day uh, for, for almost two years now. And that's been great. Uh, it's sort of a 10-minute window into the reality here. I want people as they're driving to work in America to feel like they're here, both the, the, the moments of pain and difficulty, but also the moments of hope and inspiration. And uh, you can find those episodes at ukrainianfreedomnews.com. And um, while doing that, I'm always traveling the country where uh, you know, we have uh, many loyal listeners who come here to volunteer or send money. Actually, and it was very difficult to raise money last summer and fall. But they, uh, I think we, we see a new awakening, uh, you know, a very loyal cohort of people who want to help. And so the past month, uh, we've been able to buy a lot of drones, whether they're surveillance drones for search and rescue or the amazing uh, $500 FPV drones that can take out millions of dollars worth of Russian equipment. Uh, we've been able to get that to uh, various units and friends at the front lines. And, uh, and then I think beyond that, I've been, especially the past month and a half, you know, I used to work in Washington and New York, and I know lots of leading American voices, uh, especially sort of on the conservative side. I don't like to use those terms, but who are skeptical of Ukraine. And I've been asking them to tell me exactly why, what their pain points are. And, and then I've been using that information to make you know, Ukrainians and supporters of Ukraine more aware of how we need to reach the American people, because the Ukrainians will not surrender. And that's one reason we could talk about why I'm here in Kharkiv. I really feel that uh, very deeply here, where it's incredibly dangerous. But it's possible for Ukrainians to bleed out. And the way that this can change uh, is if we wake up America and get the long-range weapons needed. Uh, if, if, if Washington can follow the lead of London and, and have the courage to send long-range weapons and permission to use them, uh, that is absolutely necessary. So that's part of our project to work on persuading people and understanding Americans uh, what their pain points are. Joe Patrick here, by the way. Good to hear from you again. Tell us something about uh, what's actually happening in, in Kharkiv. It has been subjected to a lot of bombardment in recent days, hasn't it? Indeed. Uh, you know, I was here very often last year in 2023. And from really from, from last spring, I mean, from the first anniversary of the full-scale invasion, everyone thought something horrible was going to happen February 24th, 2023. And when it didn't, uh, I was here at that time, the city sort of found a new life and people began to come back. Uh, it's crazy to think about it because it is, it is just about 30 miles uh, from the Russian border. And last summer and fall, uh, shops and restaurants are reopening. Uh, there is traffic again. Uh, people say that they're the first time in their lives they never complained about traffic. It would bring, you know, give people tears to, to see it. And so the city was coming back to life and, and rebuilding already. And then from uh, December 28th of last year, you know, New Year's weekend, the Russians began to pound this city. Uh, it started with several days of very intense attacks, including one night 
one afternoon and night with 23 missiles that hit the city, which is an absolute pounding. And so ever, I was in Lviv at the time, but I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to be here and I knew everyone was suffering immensely. I had never heard fear in people's voices from Kharkiv before because they, they, they've been through so much until New Year's weekend. And I think, you know, when I was in Lviv, it's easy to, the further away you are, I think, from the thick of it, and, and Lviv was attacked too over New Year's. It was a big Russian effort. But um, the further away you are from the thick of it, it's easier to get depressed. I think this applies also to people in faraway capitals. Uh, and so I kind of wanted just to, to get away for a while, go to a beach in Mexico, and somehow I found myself on a train coming the opposite direction uh, straight to, to, to Kharkiv. And being here, there's a clarity here. And I think, you know, everyone, the, those people who live here, uh, they do so very intentionally. They know, they know it's dangerous. And, and they know that, um, I mean, really at any moment, you know, as, as everyone calls it, it's, it's literally a Russian roulette. And it's terrifying to be here. But there's this, everyone I speak with here says very consciously, it's important to be here. Because if the people le- left, then that would open the city up for Russian occupation. And so everyone, all the civilians here, too, are a front in a way. They're keeping the city uh, as part of the resistance. And the nature of these attacks is, uh, I mean, the Russians have been once again pounding the center of the city. Uh, they were targeting hotels, which certainly discourages foreigners coming. So that, that, you know, Russians don't want people to see what they're doing. They don't want people coming to help and volunteer. I mean, it's, it's a whole new level of danger knowing that, you know, everyone is, is a target here. And last Tuesday, there was uh, the Russians hit at four o'clock in the morning. We knew there was an incoming major attack. We had uh, for the whole country, 12 uh, or so Russian bombers had taken off and were moving into launch position. And about three o'clock in the morning, we knew that between six and eight, there was going to be a nationwide Russian attack upon Ukraine. Uh, And so you you try to get some rest in that time. But there was no rest here because before that, at four o'clock, the Russians started to send missiles to Kharkiv. Right after the all clear alarm went off, the alarms don't mean anything here. In fact, m- more often than not, missiles arrive before the alarm sounds. But that chilling morning, we just got the all clear and the missiles hit and, and they hit right in the center in, in a very quick barrage. And then once that was over, we knew that in two hours we had another, you know, the main attraction, another major attack coming our way. And, and so that was an awful morning, which I almost forget because then that night, at about 10 o'clock at night, you know, I, like many people here, had been, you, you sleep in the bathroom usually, so you can try to get some rest. Uh, you got to stay away from windows. And at 10 o'clock at night uh, in my flat here, I, I was tired. I said, well, we already had a big attack today. I'm just going to lie down on the couch for a few moments. And I closed my eyes and just very close to me. I didn't know what was happening at first. I was sort of foggy in a dream state. And uh, major missiles uh, hit the center of the city. They hit one of the most historic buildings a university building. And I heard from friends that there was a coffee shop I would go to one block away. And so people uh, who go to that shop rushed to the scene on the middle of the night. The next morning at eight o'clock, taking a walk there to see what has happened. And amazingly, the coffee shop opened on time. Its windows were blown out. There was glass everywhere. Uh, People are cleaning up the debris. Uh, They're serving coffee to the newly homeless and to rescue workers. And they're open for business. And, And that's what I see in the city every day. And even imagine walking into a place that was bombed several hours before and no one is even really talking about it. You say, hi, how are you to the barista? And she smiles and said, you know, remembers your usual coffee. That that is a spirit of absolute defiance that, that I see here. And I think when I'm here in Kharkiv, I realize that 
this war is really about two totally different ways of living, two totally different ideologies. And here in Ukraine, this is, a, I see it as two, a, a polar, polar opposites. This is the pole of freedom, of sort of self-sufficiency and people that want to live and make something of their lives and of dignity versus this pole of tyranny and victimhood. And, and that's what Russia is. Russia can't have something like Kharkiv, and so they try to destroy it. And I think as we look at all of our uh, political debates, geopolitically and domestically around the world, I think every country around the world exists somewhere in the spectrum between what, what, I, what I see here in Kharkiv and what we see from Russia. This is like the wild, in a sense, uncontrollable, but cooperative freedom versus very dark, demonic uh, tyranny. And, uh, and so that's why I'm here. Uh, and I think here also, as I try to speak to people in Washington, I, I hope I have some more credibility by being willing to be here uh, just 30 miles where at any moment we can be attacked. Joe, there were reports this morning from the Ukrainian military, I think, that uh, Russia is about to open uh, what it describes as, a, as its winter spring offensive with Kharkiv as a possible target. It's a huge city, as you've already pointed out. I mean, it's not going to be easy. Even if the Russians get anywhere close, it's not going to be easy for them to take the city, is it? No, and it never has. And this is Kharkiv is one of the reasons why uh, when, when the full-scale invasion started, or when, you know, when we knew it was going to start, I knew that Ukraine was not going to fall because in 2014, after the Revolution of Dignity, Russians tried to take Kharkiv and Ukraine didn't have, there was no police force. There was barely an army. Uh, the citizens had taken control of their country and they'd kicked out the pro-Russian regime. And for about 24 hours, these murky 24 hours in the spring of 2014, Russians had taken over, the like pro-Russian forces had taken over the city and the people kicked them out. And they did the same thing in, in the, uh, the spring of 2022. It was the citizens of Kharkiv uh, at the edge of the city shooting from the windows of North Saltivka that protected the city. Uh, and so there's no way that this city would surrender it. Everyone who's here now, you know, they're intentionally here. I even met a girl who, uh, she was in exile, you know, living on a, a, a beach in Spain. And she saw what was happening to her city over New Year's and came back in the time of greatest danger. And so that's, that's who's here right now, the fiercest people. And we've been hearing these rumors really going back to the fall. You know, you often hear it from sort of Americans on the ground here that very nice and good volunteers, but I don't know where they get their intelligence and they, they get the scaremongering reports. Oh, don't go to Kharkiv. Uh, there's going to be a ground invasion. I've heard that uh, almost every month uh, since the summer. And, uh, you know, we do see some Russian incursions at the border. But the main issue here is Kharkiv is unprotected really for, for missiles. And, uh, we, you know, we had a drone attack. Well, yesterday we had attacks all uh, throughout the day, starting around 10 o'clock in the morning. In fact, I expect something while we're talking here at any moment. Attacks throughout the day and then drones through the night. And when Russia can send missiles from, from Belgorod, for example, when there's no time to stop it, if Kharkiv had, say, a Patriot missile system to defend it, They'd have a better chance. Uh, you know, Kiev is well protected, but Kharkiv is not. But the other thing is because Ukraine does not have the permission to use American weapons to hit Russian bases, the Russians can fire from just over the border. And if uh, Ukraine had permission, say, to use HIMARS or ATACMs to hit Russian positions, they could at least make it, the, you know, the Russians would have to shoot missiles from further away, which would give Kharkiv a little bit of time. 
But amazingly, after two years, the United States still refuses to let Ukraine attack anything on Russian soil. Ukraine, you know, we could talk about it later, but they, there's some clandestine attacks, but they're not really able to. So this city is totally unpro- unprotected and almost, I think, surrendered uh, by the West. But people here refuse to give up. Okay, that's enough of part one. Do join us after the break. Joe, can I ask you about a specific bit of uh, political military news? Um, and this is something I'm sure you've heard of. The, this uh, standoff between President Zelensky and uh, the Armed Forces Chief Valery Zeluzhny. Apparently, the situation is a bit unclear, but um, uh, clearly Zelensky did try and move against Zeluzhny to get him to stand down, but was forced to backtrack because of opposition from other senior military commanders and indeed uh, international partners as well, led by the US and the UK. What do you know about that? I think the first thing is that there's a lot we, we can't, we're not going to know about this. And, uh, you know, the rumors uh, swirl about it. You know, it's like when we saw last fall, within a two-week space of time, you had uh, President Zelensky's interview with Time. And then a week later, <clears throat> The Economist uh, talking to Zeluzhny. And it seemed that there wasn't, that was very strange. Like, was there coordination there? Or is there some competition? Uh, I, I, but I think, I, I don't think, everything I can see of Zelensky, I think he's very shrewd. You know, he's very focused on promoting Ukraine for victory. Even so far as like, you know, he doesn't even write off Donald Trump. He said, Donald Trump, come to Ukraine in 24 minutes. I'll show you why you can't uh, stop Russia in 24 hours. Zelensky, is, uh, he's, he's, very, he's become very wise in this process. Zeluzhny is more beloved than Zelensky in Ukraine, if you look at the poll numbers. Ukrainians don't really play that Western game of, or American game, really, of adoring and worshipping politicians. They really don't. But Zeluzhny is much more beloved overall. I mean, Zelensky is respected, but there's a deep love for Zeluzhny. Uh, and surely everyone has to realize that. But the only thing that I think we can say about it, I think most of it is a distraction, maybe pushed by Russian propaganda. But there are, there's all, you know, uh, you watch, uh, you know, the British show, Yes Minister, right? Like, there's always machinate court machinations and always your political advisors and that's all they can see and um certainly there are people like that you know in the president's office so maybe there there is some of that going on but i don't think i mean for how long have we been we've been hearing about this rift you know even even a year uh, almost a year ago so i don't think there's much to it and i think also you know it's i always like to look at what what, what could the headlines be if we weren't talking about say zelensky and Zeluzhny, or uh, as it was last week, you know, there were all the headlines about the uh, POWs on the, Ru- on, on the Russian plane. And I even found myself sucked into that for a few moments on my daily radio show. The host was asking me, you know, this is horrible that the Ukrainian POWs, you know, were all killed. And then I step back and say, wait, we don't even know. You know, we don't know if they were on the plane. If they were, it's a violation of Geneva Convention. But the real headline, which I think the Russians are very very adroit at obscuring, within one week, Ukrainians destroyed, with, with you know, minimal resources, destroyed three of the most powerful planes uh, that Russia has. Uh, the week before, they destroyed the $330 million A-50. <clears throat> and then it seems now they've destroyed two IL-76. And these, uh, in total, between those two types of planes, Russia only has about 24. And it seems the Ukraine within a week destroyed three. 
Those planes are crucial for launching and coordinating uh, nationwide missile attacks upon Ukraine. And so it's an extraordinary story. And that totally got missed in the headlines. And so we're focused on Geneva and were there, were there, you know, and by the way, Russia violations of Geneva and were there, were there uh, not POWs on the plane. Very brilliant way of Russia to obscure uh, Ukraine's incredible success. And uh, what we hear on that story is that by all accounts, it seems that Ukraine, you know, they have so many restrictions on the weapons sent here, especially from, from the U.S. Uh, the U.K. is more generous. But by all accounts, it seems that Ukrainians essentially MacGyvered collection of weapons and tools to make sure they follow the rules and took down these jets. Uh, that should have been the headline. Yeah, we were we were suckered into that a little bit. I mean, we we added caveats, I think, in in our in our justification, Joe. Let's talk more generally about the mood in Ukraine at the moment. You've spoken about the spirit in Kharkiv. Uh, it's understandable, I suppose, that when you're in that sort of position, it's it's backs against the wall. But what's the feeling a bit further afield? You you live most of the time in Lviv, of course, uh, and also spend a bit of time in, in Kyiv. What would you say the spirit of the people is like in those two locations and further away from the front lines? Well, you know, I mean, in the war, you see it, there's a whole spectrum. You know, it's just, I think everything is clarified and who people are is clarified. And so as we've seen since the beginning, you have, I mean, the adrenaline has worn off, right? So this is the, this is the endurance phase. And you always have people that you know, try to run away from it or try to hide it. People who are terrified, uh, people who are afraid of, you know, not re- that feel they're not ready to be called up. I know others who, you know, have been called up and uh, lost their business as a result, and, but never complained about it. And, and there's a heaviness and a frustration. There's a lot of people talking about, should there be an election? Uh, I even know very political people that are trying, you know, always the same with politicians. No one wants an election until they know they have a chance uh, to win it. And that applies to opposition parties and, and to, to, to the governing party. But I think what a new div- sort of mind mentality that there is, is a very clear recognition that, especially in Washington, that there's not a desire for victory. And I know more about the motives of that, but at a basic level here, there's an understanding that, you know, Ukraine might have to be very much on its own in order to keep doing this. And, but I don't see, no, 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 one, wants to, uh, no one wants to live in, in a Russian hell. And even people that you know, used to sort of say, oh, maybe Russia's not that bad, after two years of being attacked, uh, you know, there, there's no way that anyone would want to surrender. So it's, it's, there, there's a sadness, and I see that here. I mean, you talk to people, and very often they have tears in their eyes. I mean, it, it's incredibly sad and difficult. And everyone, you know, everyone knows has lost someone or knows people that, you know, I mean, so many people, the number of people who've lost limbs, both civilians and soldiers, is extraordinary. When you walk around Lviv, you see so many people walking around with just one leg uh, because that's, you know, that's where often where they go to heal and rehabilitate. And there's a, you know, absolute anger about Russia. I mean, as I, as I think about it, you know, Russia is really, it's a school shooter of nations. Uh, they, they can't make a good life for themselves and they just want to des- destroy as much as they can. And, uh, you know, the, the question that I think for the world and what Ukrainians are asking, you know, will, will the West uh, be like those police officers in Uvalde, Texas, that, that just let the shooting happen? Uh, or will they rally to it and, and wake up? But I, I, I'd say so it's, it's a heaviness. There's a deep heaviness here. That, and that's part, I mean, really part of my mission now is to talk with Americans and to say, you know, to find out why they don't support Ukraine and see if there's a way to get the Americans who say they love freedom to actually wake up and see the reality here. 
Um, and because, you know, it's very, in, in the American political discourse, many on the right who oppose Ukraine, uh, not only do they oppose Ukraine funding, but they actively mock or denigrate this country as some kind of globalist project. When it's amazing, because when every single day here is the stories of heroism, of faith, people, people standing for faith, family, and freedom in a way that Americans would love and adore, and they're totally missing uh, these stories. And I speak with, uh, I was talking with uh, Ben Shapiro, the popular American pundit, who now currently has, some, strangely, the number one rap song in the world. I don't know how to explain <laughs> this. And, you know, he has, unlike Tucker Carlson, he doesn't lie about Ukraine, but he's quiet he, until recently. And, uh, and he's been quiet about Ukraine. And I'm trying to figure out, how do you get these people to wake up about, you know, uh, what's happening here? As an American here, I know how to reach these people. And uh, so I, I wrote to Ben Shapiro and I said, hey, Ben, are you aware that Ukraine is the only country in Europe uh, since October 7th where there's not been a major, a single major pro-Hamas protest? Uh, this never is mentioned in the news. And he Ben responded. He said, whoa, I, I had no idea. I could, you know, I couldn't imagine this. And I said, yeah, it's because everyone here, they saw what Hamas did. They, they listened to what Hamas says about their designs. They see how they collaborate with, or, you know, are friendly with Russia. The Ukrainians have seen evil and they, they reject it. So we had a little bit of an opening there to someone like Ben. Uh, but it's, it's a very difficult process to sort of break through these American uh, preconceptions. And even here uh, last week in, in Kharkiv, uh, right before, a couple of days before the, that major attack on Tuesday, I was talking with an American reporter, prominent, and the person told me, uh, while ordering a fancy uh, latte, said, uh, you know, it's just too bad that the, the I, I think that the people here, especially in this city, refuse to face the reality that their city is going to fall. And it's very difficult to realize that you know, you, we can see the truth so plainly here, but people far away and even people who come here, but who are part of that sort of elite world have a very different mindset and, and very different designs on, on what should happen here. And, uh, and so I, more and more Ukrainians are realizing this now. I'd love to get your take on how you see things unfolding in the States. I mean, you're doing your bit. I mean, we're all trying to do our bit. But do you, you've also pointed out, though, that Ukraine is, you know, is, is preparing for the worst, so to speak. Uh, it's, it's doing a lot of kind of a lot of agreements with European nations that it, that it hopes will, will step up to a certain extent. And it's doing a, little, a lot for itself. How do you see things playing out as far as the States are concerned? Well, you know, I think if you look at this through the prism of the F-16s, for example, and, you know, last summer, uh, you know, Denmark, with the permission of the U.S., was going to send F-16s by the end of 2023. And then in the fall, they said, oh, they'll be there by March. And I realized that when I speak, with the sense I get from people I know in Washington is Washington doesn't want any equipment like that here while we're in the current situation. And so whenever they say a date for the arrival of the F-16s, I think that's when they think that Ukraine will have said, hey, we're going to surrender a little bit. We're going to give up some territory. Uh, and, they, and they have to keep pushing that date back because the Ukrainians won't do that. And uh, it would be helpful if the press in America would really force these questions you know, uh, of the administration. And I think with the election coming up, it's easy to knock the Republicans, uh, those who've been against Ukraine, but there's very little scrutiny of the White House. And, you know, for example... I mean, they, the other day uh, or yesterday, it was announced that there'll be some so-called long-range weapons, political reported, from the U.S., from the administration. Uh, these only have a range of 90 miles. They're, they're not long-range. And no one is asking, you know, when Zelensky visited Washington in September, 
uh, the day after his visit, Ukrainians used the Storm Shadow missiles in the UK and hit Crimea, uh, hit the headquarters of the Russian naval fleet. So the US, a few hours later, agreed seemingly grudgingly to send a few attackums. Those attackums arrived, uh, they have, I think it's a 300 kilometer range. They arrived in October. Within days of their arrival, Ukrainians used them to destroy uh, Russian helicopter bases. An incredible success. And then after that, there was nothing. Nothing more was given. And so I, wouldn't, I want reporters in, in the White House, White House press pool to say, you gave these weapons, they worked, and then you stopped. Why? Explain. We need answers on that. And, and I think the difficult thing that I see is both Moscow and Washington are waiting for the Ukrainian spirit to break. Moscow is actively trying to destroy it with missiles and rockets and, and frontline bullets. But Washington is also waiting for that spirit to break. Because, and this is where we really get to this idea of freedom. You know, there's this idea, oh, you can have a bread and circuses freedom. You know, you can just cool your freedom down a bit, you know, accept some kind of tyranny. Or you can have this Ukrainian version of freedom, which I, I see so many people around the world on the left and the right, you know, they, they feel frustrated. They want some sense of agency. And then there, there's a, a, a desire to sort of reawaken some kind of idea of freedom. And Ukraine shows, shows the example there uh, by refusing to surrender in the face of this hell. But I, I think Washington... Still, they're, they're waiting for this, these spirits to break. And I, I don't see the spirits breaking. Uh, and so my best hope is that a few popular voices in America, big audiences, will, will wake up and say, we've been missing, we've been, maybe we've been lied to a bit about Ukraine. We've missed the fact uh, that this is a fight that really matters. And uh, as, as Ukrainians have shown, when they get those weapons, as from the UK and other countries, they can use them to great effect. And if you, if you listen to what's happening in, I mean, when I talk with friends in Sweden, all of a sudden, they're terrified that they're going to, you know, that they're going to get invaded soon. And if we really put ourselves to a mental exercise, let's say if Sweden was invaded, it's not in NATO now, how would the world react? And, uh, you know, is Russia afraid of how the world is acting right now? I think that's maybe the key question we have to, we have to ask ourselves uh, as we deal with this school shooter of nations that's 30 miles from me at the moment. Joe, thanks so much for all of that. That's absolutely a great insight. And uh, stay safe. We, we're hoping to come over in the spring at some point. So uh, it would be great to catch up with you then if we do. Patrick, Saul, thank you guys. What did you make of, of what Joe had to say, Saul? Well, it was a mixture, wasn't it? Incredibly inspiring. And, and yes, I, I you know, completely agree with you, Patrick. It's astonishing what he's done. He's been there since the start. That's almost two years now. And it's interesting that, you know, the feeling in Lviv, of course, a long way from the front line is very different to Kharkiv. And, and he's naturally drawn as a journalist, but also someone who's convinced that, you know, he needs to get really under the skin of what's going on in Ukraine, that he's constantly drawn to where the danger is, you know, at its worst. And that's undoubtedly in terms of big city Kharkiv. The slightly depressing aspect of all of this from what Joe is saying is how entrenched the Americans now seem to be. In his view, they're kind of waiting this out a bit like the Russians for slightly different reasons. But nevertheless, both of them hoping that Ukraine spirit's going to break. His point is it isn't going to break. And, you know, and as long as you spread the word and, and as long as, as also we've been saying for so long, uh, Ukraine can get the kit it needs and be able to use that kit against Russian forces on Russian soil. It'll have a lot better chance of coming through this and also hopefully recovering some of its territory. But it is, uh, you know, it is alarming. On the one hand, the spirit is strong, certainly in the East. But on the other hand, you know, it, you could argue that, that Ukraine currently, uh, unless things change, is, is, you know, slowly bleeding to death. 
I think that's sadly right, Saul. And I think uh, the perception in Washington that this war is unwinnable on the terms that have been set for it by Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership is uh, pretty much the conventional truth. And I'm sad to say that from what I'm hearing, uh, the same attitude is taking hold in London. Um, I was at a meeting, as I mentioned earlier, with a senior a retired officer, but who has uh, very strong connections to the MOD, and he was talking on Chatham House rules. But basically, I think the projection from the UK standpoint is that Ukraine will not, under any current circumstances, be able to regain the Donbass, uh, let alone Crimea, and that at some point, well, the lines have frozen, and that all one can hope for is that the, the Russians are not going to actually move out of the existing lines. At some point, a deal will have to be done, and that uh, militarily speaking, uh, there is nothing that's going to change uh, on the battlefield that's going to improve the Ukrainian situation. So I think that's the view from London, uh, from the military establishment anyway, and presumably by extension, uh, the politicians. So I'm afraid that moment, that brief shining moment when it looked uh, like the West was united behind Ukraine and, and determined to actually go all the way has long since passed, you know, if indeed it, with hindsight it ever really existed. So yeah, not not very good news, I think, coming out of the two capitals that really matter at the moment. And just a couple of things that Joe wasn't able to say in the interview, but did message us about afterwards, we think it's worth mentioning. He wrote to us, I neglected to mention because it's easily obscured, this winter is so much better in Ukraine than last winter, despite being equally cold. Last winter was the Middle Ages, no power, heat, hot water much of the time. The whole Russian project of freezing out Ukraine failed, and they're not even attempting it this winter. No one talks about this. So it is worth mentioning that is a big change. Um, people do have enough power and heat, and it's a you know, it's a it's a failed enterprise by the Russians, and things are much better this this year. And the other thing Joe mentioned to us uh, after we spoke to him, and we'll have to see how this plays out, is that he's had pretty good intelligence information uh, talk within Ukraine that Zeluzhny is going to go. Now we mentioned on the podcast on Friday that. Uh, Zelensky had tried to sack him and then drawn back. Well, it looks like, if Joe is right, that actually that sacking is, is going to take place anyway. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Wednesday for another episode of Battleground 44 when James Holland from the We Have Ways podcast, our sister podcast, will be talking about the Battle of Anzio. And also on Friday when we'll be giving you the latest from Ukraine, Gaza and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.